0: Hello, my name is Bryce Sturmer, and welcome to another episode of the Velodrome Coffee Podcast. The Velodrome Coffee Podcast is a platform to learn more about specialty coffee and to have intelligent discussions about it. So, here we go. Alright, so today I've got another interview we're going to be bringing here to the podcast. Um, This time it's with a good friend of mine named Ben Helt. He is in Kansas City, Missouri, and he's a a green buyer, an importer uh, at a company called Midwest Trading Company, and he's a good friend of mine. I met him about a year ago. I have done a lot of business with him at Honest Coffee Roasters, and recently learned that he used to have a coffee company, a coffee roasting company, and did a lot of, of great stuff in his community with that, and... I thought, man, this guy has a cooler story than I ever thought. I just thought he was a guy who had done coffee trading forever and because he's so good at it. But turns out a lot of the perspective he brings to the table um, as a green buyer comes from a roasting background. So I thought that was really interesting um, to hear. And I thought he had a great story to kind of tell an interesting history to hear. So we're going to get into that tonight. And also, Ben does a lot of things for the new uh, SCAA used to be the SCAA, and basically that stands for Specialty Coffee Association. Um, and so if you don't know what that is, keep listening, and we'll be talking about that in a little bit. Um, but this interview kind of is going to begin a bigger conversation that we'll be kind of delving into in the next few episodes, uh, or over the course of time, I should really say. And we're going to be looking at all the different little processes that coffee goes through to get from the, the, the tree at origin to the cup. So, Ben provides a really crucial step in that whole process with importing and and storage and some of that stuff, customs, and it's a huge part that we really don't talk about a whole lot in the industry, I would say, as roasters or as consumers, but it's absolutely crucial and essential to getting great coffees here in America. And furthermore, as you'll see we talk about a little bit in the episode— they, uh, importers play a really crucial role in traceability as well. Um, either being able to connect you directly to the farmer just, and, and their role is more of just, Hey, we have licenses and we know how to, the governments work and we can get coffee from X to X. Um, or, um, they can be like a bank basically, and they can operate very, um, very non-transparently i'm trying to think of a better word for that vague and large and not provide any details and that sort of thing so there's kind of a few different ways that importing happens um and we're gonna we're gonna get into that in the episode um but the main thing is just be thinking about this is a conversation that centers around one little piece in this whole process of getting coffee from the the plant at origin to our cup um, and so, Ben is a great example of that, and we'll go ahead and we'll just jump right into this interview. Enjoy.
1: Awesome. Well, thanks for having me on today. I appreciate it. Uh, but Yeah, my name is Ben Holt. And I've been in coffee for about, I guess, 10 years. This would be my 10, 10 year anniversary in specialty coffee. I started off as one of those folks that went from zero to having their first business and there, being a first time business owner, a first time barista, and a first time coffee roaster all at the same time, which uh, is not recommended. Don't do that. <laughs> but I was able to power through, you know, with the help of. Um, in, in the city here in Kansas City, uh, where I opened this, I opened it in a part of town that uh, I would consider kind of a, a mission field when it comes to specialty coffee, kind of a first-ring suburb, um, and not a place where specialty coffee was booming. Particularly in the mid-2000s, um, you needed a little bit of a higher density to come out of the gate swinging. And for me, it was about doing something in our community that we were missing. So my wife mm-hmm. and I had lived there for five or five or so years had moved from our first house to our second house. And we're kind of craving doing something entrepreneurial that brought something to the community that was, uh, that we wanted to see that wasn't there yet. And we weren't mm-hmm. ready to be the bar owners in the family. And so <laughs> we decided, you know, cause we definitely needed some more nightlife, but, uh, <laughs> coffee seemed at the time to be this nice vice where we could create a space for cultural exchange and you know before then the only place you would see artwork on a wall would be in a school yeah, or a sure. church or a bank you know and we wanted to bring one more level of that to the community yeah. and so we we got into coffee in a very community minded way and to sum it up, well, and then I also wanted our community to have another thing that it manufactured, that it produced. And so that's why okay. I decided to roast. And in particular, at that time, uh, yeah, there were I gotcha. three to four major mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, wholesale coffee roasting companies in yeah. Kansas City. And I kind of just – I didn't want to be another face for them. Not that I had anything against them. I mean, I respect and love all of those companies to this day. Mm-hmm. But just wanted to add something to the mix. And this was also during a boom of um, – Shop roasting um, cafes, and so went down that path, yeah. and was very, I would say, humbled yeah. oh, within man. the first three or four months. And what was interesting is I couldn't get any <laughs> experienced priestess to Ouch. work for me because they were like, "Wait, you're opening a cafe? Where? No thanks." You know. But uh. what was great was how many people in the coffee industry happened to live in my community. Mm-hmm and came in as customers. And once I humbled myself and and listened to what they were telling me and bought into those things, our coffee program um, turned much better. And, uh, you know, we were able to continue to make a difference over seven years. I would say over time, uh, I kind of fell more in love with coffee than the community. I kind of fell out (laughs) of love with the community, more in love with coffee, and it kind of uh, went down that path. And in 2004, Mm-hmm. Or I'll just say recently in the past sure. several years yeah, I was yeah. able to sell the wholesale part of my company and that became the seeds for what what is now known as messenger coffee in Kansas City yeah, and yeah. then I sold the retail part of my business to a couple that met through uh, that worked for me but they met serving each other across the counter and got married and now they they own uh, the retail shop the cafe there so both still in business both and well and uh, of course, Messenger is so awesome. much bigger than I would have ever been able to achieve with with what they do, and they're doing sure. some amazing things. Yeah, it's, absolutely, it's a, absolutely. It's a big name. And so that's it's what definitely. brings me to this. Well, before I got into coffee, I was uh, I did community relations and public relations work for public school districts. So for a decade before that, and that's what my education is in is public relations. Um, uh, I worked. Doing community work on behalf of public school districts. And so, even though I've not been a teacher in the past, I've been involved with nonprofit organizations all the way up until I got into coffee, which sometimes can be a no profit organization. <laughs> and uh, and uh, yeah, yeah. And Depends, so, yeah. <laughs> um, my work in the SCA um, seems like a, is, is something where I feel right at home, where it takes my passion for coffee. And sure. uh, delivering that product to being part of that supply chain and mixes it with um, the connectedness that I appreciate uh, within the industry. And so I feel very comfortable in nonprofit organizations, particularly trade organizations yeah. and being in coffee. So uh, in my world, and I guess I should share that. So in addition to being involved in sales of green coffee and connecting roasters with awesome green um part of my second job is coordinating all of the e-learning programs for mm-hmm. the SCA, or what we now know as the SCA. And so, and which there's a lot of change there too. Like if we were talking a year from now, um, I'm not exactly sure uh, what that, that is going to look like. I think it's going to be exciting, but uh, you know, my role in that may be changing. So currently I, I oh, I also, for a brief stint between, um, selling the businesses and joining Midwest Coffee Trading, I uh, helped open an S E at that time SCAA uh, campus here in Kansas City called Workbench Coffee Labs. Oh, so sweet. I, I was that. really excited awesome. about about transitioning into education from there. And then this opportunity to be involved in the uh, import business came about. Yeah, And uh, so I, I'm perfectly willing to admit and say, and that I am a rookie when it comes to green, but uh, I've definitely been around coffee <laughs> for a while, so I still have a lot to learn. Um, about for sure, the nuances of green sales and whatnot. Gotcha. Yeah. So that's a uh, yeah, that's me.
0: Yeah, and like I, so I met Ben about a year ago, um, and. I just I thought he was uh, like a green importer guy, and I was just like, oh cool, he's very knowledgeable. By the way, you don't seem like a rookie. <laughs> and there was something really different about your approach. And um, with you and Brian coming to the shop and just like hanging out, um, mm-hmm. I remember that being like a really big part of our like getting to know each other. And oh, it was awesome. like a really like no pressure situation where you're just like, hey, like me and this guy, we're like here, we're just gonna hang out with you, talk about like your needs. And then eventually we tried some of your coffees and they were amazing. Um, oh, and yeah, like, I, th- I feel like maybe I, so first of all, I didn't know any of your background until like a few weekends ago. And I was just like, wait, what? This guy hasn't been trading green coffee for like 10 years. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, but I think it, I think I, I like that about you a lot because you have so much experience with roasting and own your own company and like. HR and that sort of thing where when it comes to green coffee sales, you're much more approachable and you seem to like understand things from my perspective where I feel like a lot of times when I work with green coffee importers, um, it's a lot more of just like a sales relationship. So that's, I love that.
1: Well, if you think that flattery (laughs) is going to
0: get you anywhere with me, you are correct. No,
1: you just work. I'll come out <laughs> all the time this is going to be how it goes. But, you know, you're right. Perspective perspective is yeah, really important definitely. in this business. And as you know, I mean, if there's one thing that's a, a fact and a constant about especially coffee is that there are trust issues in this business, you know, all yeah, the way to sure. the retail customer trusting their barista when they're describing the flavor, you know, calling out flavors in the coffee. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, it takes a mix. There are some amazing people when it comes to um, – selling and bringing in green coffee, that that's all they've done. And yeah. They're very, very good at it. And I don't yep. want to take anything away from there, Definitely. but I think a good team also involves some people who know what it's like to take their own money mm-hmm. and buy coffee and sell it to somebody else. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's a certain set of emotions yeah, um, and irrational thoughts Definitely. that come with that. And I understand all of those. You know, I've made all of those mistakes as yeah. a coffee buyer. And... You know, and so it kind of lends itself to something that so some, I I can't even identify sometimes that helps someone who's done that connect with roasters. Not with everybody doesn't doesn't connect with everyone, but mm-hmm. it's definitely something that plays into it. And sure. Also, I mean, it's the same thing that makes a good coffee roaster somebody who knows what, it, you know somebody who actually buys coffee like to drink. <laughs> you know, is you know, yeah does a, a better job roasting
0: exactly. Yeah, no, I, yeah, and that's so, yeah, Ben's been, you've been awesome to work with, and that, I think that perspective has been really beneficial for me as a green buyer, and yeah, that's been cool. So, a little bit about green importing, because that's what you are doing right now. Um, So, kind of just give us like an overview of even, let's say, uh, like a good example coffee to maybe talk through would be like Mm -hmm. the Sumatra currency and like, that's been a huge favorite of mine. Um, one of my, definitely, actually, let me think about it. Yeah, probably my favorite coffee I've had this year um, for multiple reasons and actually okay. used it for competition in Brewers Cup this year was this incredibly clean, amazing Sumatra currency, for those of you who don't know. And Ben was pretty crucial in getting that in my hands. So let's talk mm-hmm. a little bit about like what is importing. And how does it work and, like, why is it necessary? Absolutely.
1: Well, I think the first thing I should share is that our company, Midwest Coffee Trading, is small. And uh, that mm-hmm. affects what our business model looks like. And the fact that this is not a situation where there is a trading company who is owned by an investment bank or by a larger commodity trader. Several, uh, And, and mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with them. I mean, I've had amazingly delicious coffees and have bought delicious coffees from people or businesses who follow that model, right, that are or that. So, like, we have, uh, in the United States, we have a wide range of business models set up to where you have large conglomerate exporters who have now opened specialty importing shops and sales shops in the United States. Mm -hmm. You have very large strictly like strict importers who maybe have some investment from larger investment banks or uh, organizations who own farms who have bought into that importing arm Uh, you have farms who will uh, you know mom dad have the farm uh, and then their offspring have importing Mm -hmm. shops here in in the states who you know and i bought lots of coffee from those and I'm trying not to name names yeah. I know I'm gonna leave, leave somebody out. But somebody a like Dos Uh yep. where where there's somebody who lives here on the stateside. Uh, I used to buy a lot of Sumatra from Suirijaya coffee. Oh yeah. And it was them. a similar thing where there was a partner on each side, the origin side in this side, who put together a container or two, move it and then sell it once it was stateside. And Yep.
0: Exactly. Midwest
1: coffee trading and I know you didn't ask me to go into the history of it, but I think that it kind of gives, um, it lends itself to understanding the scope of what trading companies do. So there's a point to this. Yeah, go ahead. You know, this started 32 years ago, this company, and by a guy named Uncle Vaughn, and I don't think he has a last name. Just everybody knows him as Uncle Vaughn. (laughs) And Uncle Vaughn was the head buyer for Folgers here in Kansas City and retired and then started a business selling coffee. Uh, back to folders, smart, and uh, these guys (laughs) are doing that thing where they're watching the market, buying low, selling just a little bit higher, and flipping containers for half a penny a pound, right? So just one after another. And and so that is just having a good amount of money and expertise and then understanding Mm -hmm. um, the market, knowing when to, to buy, sell a little bit higher, and move a large amount of coffee with a little bit of money.
0: Yeah, totally. And then
1: he brought his nephew on, his nephew brought his brother on, and now the third generation, who you know, Jeff Hanson Jr., uh, is now involved in the business. And with each generation of the family, the company has kind of changed uh, to go with these waves of coffee. Mm -hmm. So starting with um, the Folgers commodity-grade coffee to... Bring, you know, mm-hmm. basically trading coffee that is either being brought in by exporters stateside or moving containers from those places, but selling it to roasters that still, and this still happens today, and it's a very viable and essential part of our supply chain to just buy coffee using a country name as a code word for a cup profile.
0: Yeah. Makes sense. Like Definitely. You, mm-hmm. you
1: mentioned that very clean Sumatra. Like that, that Karinchi? Uh, there mm-hmm. are customers who would turn that down cold because it doesn't taste, yeah. doesn't have that that earthy funk that we were looking for in uh, what would be a more uh, second wave Sumatra, right? Yeah, and definitely. so, uh, so I'm trying to couch this all in the, uh, in the story of this company because I think it it helps people understand what we do, and so the mix of things that happen in sure. our importing shop, uh, or what I would call a trading shop as well, range from. Things like the Curinchi, where we work with somebody at origin who is, uh, you know, especially in a place mm-hmm. like Sumatra, where so where it almost all has to be co-op because the stakeholders and the smallholders, their farms are so small, they couldn't produce enough for a bag sometimes. And so it's important to have somebody on the ground. But we work with them yeah. put together a container. We then sure. uh, they serve as an exporter. We serve as an importer. Right. And so we have the importing license. We have the FDA numbers. We have everything that we need to bring that in. And we're accepting the risk on behalf of roasters as that is traveling across the ocean and uh, got to land in our right. place. And it's not that's something that just insurance mm-hmm. can take care yep. of. You think Lots it is. And you're there. like, OK, well, it's <laughs> down. they got insurance. And that's true. But we may have a payment. But what we won't have is coffee and then the profit that would come from that coffee if there was right. an accident. So there's that model. Then you have the model of what we've been doing, um, like in Costa Rica, where we go down, cup the coffees, buy the coffees, so where we build the container. Obviously we cut right. all the Sumatras as well, but we're a little bit more on the ground there and uh, moving that through. Sure. And so uh, you have that kind of relationship. Now I'm gonna go to the far side. And the, the far side of that is where we work with exporters who also have an importing role and will will buy coffee from them x warehouse so it'll be coffee that's already stateside, and that, that follows an old model of I'm going to buy a whole lot at a cheaper price and so you a smaller amount as a, at a higher price right so we get better deals because of our volume and our size uh-huh. where you know it just follows that now that's not something that probably sounds as uh, compelling or sexy to roasters, <laughs> but sometimes that's part of what keeps this very supply chain moving. Is following those kinds of things. So, uh, a lot of times you'll see those coffees are ones that uh, several of my customers in the specialty world uh, are helping build blends with, um, or you know, is kind of a, a mm-hmm. part of their stock program that they do and the that i've been learning a lot about that yeah that was all new to me yep. and uh but i'm digging how that works um and so there's mm-hmm. on that end there's just trading it's basically just following that model And there's Sweet. times where like we sell coffee to other importers and they sell coffee to us and so that happens in the background too and some of it is just because roasters some roasters need to have a mixed pallet. you know they're going to be mm-hmm. moving mm-hmm. four different coffees on a bag of, yep. on a pallet of 10 bags and uh, so we'll we'll kind of trade within the warehouse yeah. to make sure that they're getting the coffee that they need. And for the most part, for the most part, yep. like importers are extremely friendly <laughs> to each other. You know, it's like uh, you know, it's like Todd Mackey says, uh, or somebody told Todd Mackey, who then told me that you know, coffee's a small pool. Don't pee in it. You know, <laughs> it's gotta, play, so gotta true. play nice. Oh gotta yeah. Play nice. And yep. uh, and so there's that. Now, in between those two examples, another thing that we do as an importer. Is facilitate direct trade relationships. And that's what I was doing in Guatemala and yeah. El Salvador uh, within the past two weeks. Okay. Yeah. Uh, was kind of a, yeah, ask you about that. Kind of a Go hybrid ahead. approach. There's a group of roasters that um, mm-hmm. have formed a buying group. And they used to, one of the roasters used to take care of the import themselves, doesn't want to be taking that risk anymore and wants to use his mm-hmm. capital elsewhere. And has brought us in as a member of the buying group, but then also the importer for the buying group. You know, you hear a lot of, you know, Uh, we talk a lot and we do uh, at Midwest take roasters to origin. And this was kind of, this kind of flipped that instead of the importer taking the roasters to origin, the roasters took the importer to origin. (laughs) And uh, that was a, that was a fun flip of the script on that. And so what they do is there's some communities they've been working in for years and they go down and cup their coffees. And then we are also cupping and usually there's enough for all of us. And after the roasters, figure out what they're going to get and uh, settle on their pricing. Then we fill out the container Mm -hmm. and bring back coffee to sell spot. And in addition, uh, you know, we make a a very minimal service fee for moving their coffee, mostly because it helps us get access to some pretty amazing coffees um, and help build those relationships with both the producers and the roasters. So it's kind of experimental. Um, This group, in fact, pays a premium and then, Uh, Uh adds money to a fund that helps put on farm-level research projects. And what we've done, because we can move that container more efficiently than the roasters can, and because we fill out the rest of the container, that gives us some wiggle room to where we can give back Uh to this quality development fund six cents per pound of Uh direct trade coffee. So these, whatever we bring in on behalf of the roasters, because of the efficiencies we build in we're able to generate 6 cents per pound for that nice for every coffee that we then sell spot we are building in a 10 cent premium to the roaster yeah. so you know full trans uh-huh. you know transparency the roaster is paying 10 cents more for that coffee nice. but then that roaster knows that that 10 cents they are now uh-huh. officially participating in this quality development nice. fund and i'm not just talking about building raised beds right this is yep this is a situation where you may be uh, kind of committing to risky experimental processing, uh, different kinds of fertilizers. One project involved nice. a nursery where, um, right, you know, one of the farms in Guatemala is producing an, an, an enormous amount of uh, geisha um, plants in their nursery, sure. and. Um, you know, projects like that. And so, like, there's like they need to kind of get some water up there, so this may help purchase uh, a water pump. Um, but, like, there's sometimes where, um, like, oh, also DNA testing for uh, okay.
0: hybrids nice. of
1: plants and selections and mutations that have mm-hmm. become something new. For example, in this squatabala farm in Acontonango, this family has this catamor that doesn't taste like catamore. It is so okay. good you know and uh, they're calling it green tip catamore because the the leaves don't have the typical tips that uh, a catamore you think so these quality development nice. the projects help make some of these things happen and then okay. the whole idea is just keep awesome coffee coming from this area and so again you have trading on one side you have us going in and just basically building our containers and, and menu of selection from roasters on the other side, uh, like a true importer. And then right in the middle, you've got some of these hybrid models. Now, what Midwest doesn't do is export. Like, So we don't own any dry mills or wet mills or farms. And there's a lot of other uh, mm-hmm. places where you can buy green that are getting into that. And we would love to, but that's just not something that the company has, has taken on yet. So that's a little bit about yeah. so the range of things that I do day to day revolve around both sides of that. Um, I am still learning a lot about how to provide uh, an excellent service and product to the kind of customer who goes through a container a month sure, for particularly totally. coffee. That's a whole nother. That's a whole other world, and so the guys that mm-hmm. uh, are most senior in our company, they they understand the language and the nuance and everything of of talking to somebody about differentials and spreads and containers. And I'm learning a lot about that. And we're helping yeah. we're helping yep. uh, them understand what it's like to work with roasters like you. That um, where quality trumps just about everything else. I mean, obviously it needs to work within your budget. It needs to be something that can keep you sustainable, mm-hmm. but, uh, uh, where we're not bound by like, we're not bound by an assumed cup profile from a country. Does that make sense? You know? Yeah. And, and again, the Sumatra is a, an excellent example of that. There are sometimes we have the best time selling sure. some of these super clean Sumatras, particularly the dry hold ones to companies who just who looking on the eye and say, I don't buy Sumatra. And I'm like, cool let's let's see
0: what happens <laughs> that you was know. me exactly. about like, that a few big, months ago you know, <laughs> exactly
1: that, that just aren't interested in this coffee so right yeah yeah because it cuts like a kenya you know
0: exactly yeah, <laughs> i can understand indeed. exactly it's wild so that's awesome so like you like this is a great example of a pretty wide range of things that you guys mm-hmm. do um Compared to other importers, I would say, and just like different levels of Mm -hmm. of, um, sales, like types. We're working with giant, like you said, giant roasters that are looking for a very specific country, specific like taste profile. You're working with smaller roasters. You're working with roaster groups. um, And yeah, that's awesome. So when it comes to like importing and that sort of thing, I know another... A uh, country you guys have been involved in a lot is brazil so what mm, are some of the yeah. things you're doing there with like this is a whole nother world for people listening like this is a whole nother world we might delve in he- into here about auction lots mm-hmm. and that sort of thing but what can you tell us a little bit about brazil and auction lots and the things you guys have been doing there and how that works Absolutely. I should, I should say right off the
1: bat that my colleague, Brian Phillips, yeah. who was the, uh, he was the head roaster at Broadway Roasting Company here in Kansas City. One of the legendary founders, in my opinion, of the specialty coffee scene in Heck Kansas yeah. City, along with three yeah, or four others. totally. He's uh, you know, somebody who helped define specialty coffee in Kansas City. Mm-hmm. He has a real heart. Like, I would say the softest spot in my coffee heart is for Indonesian coffees, and for him, Sweet. it's definitely <laughs> Brazil. Now, oh, for sure. he's not somebody who would say that uh, the best coffee ever is Brazilian. You know, like he's not he's right. not blind mm-hmm. to other amazing coffees, but he's got a real heart for the role that Brazil plays in specialty coffee, and rightfully so. I mean, they produce a lot, yep. but they use a lot. Definitely. Know? And so he has a relationship with Caio Pereira. And Caio okay. is, um, I think, a third-generation coffee farmer in Brazil. And is somebody who okay. was uh, attended school here in Springfield, Missouri, and was moving some coffee for his awesome. family. And uh, that's how Brian got to know him. They crossed paths, and uh, that was the start of an awesome relationship. So Brian has visited uh, the Carmo de Minas area of Brazil, state, I believe is what we would call it. And uh, at least a couple of times, I believe twice now he's been there, but has yeah. worked closely with that family, too. Um, mm mm-hmm. Bring some coffees from the Coca Rive co-op, which is a cooperative that represents, I'd say, 600 some odd farmers, and that's just that's just okay. on their conventional side. Uh, there's a whole different organic arm to Coca Rive, and the name of it I cannot remember off the top of my head. But you know, I as a roaster, I'm a guy who bought a lot of Minas Geris, uh-huh. um and You know, I always liked Brazilian coffee. I I had some raisin process where they allow the fruit to dry on the tree in a a very particular spot. And so, like, I would explored Brazilian coffee, but it always was just going to be chocolate and nuts, you know, but more of a baker's chocolate and an unsalted, unroasted peanut. (laughs) Like, you know, Mm -hmm, it just served the role that it served. And I feel like over the past two years, Brian has just been really, like, opening my mind and helping me explore what feels like a brand-new origin you know. And this part of Brazil, this Carma Geminis, which is in the Machiquero Geminis area. And say Machacara is like saying the Rockies for us, right? And so but it's an area that has now become organized and branded. Okay, gotcha. So if you're gonna have coffee that says Machacara de Geminis on it, it actually has to be. So it's like what we associate with Kona coffees. You know, you can't call it Kona unless it has a certain percentage of Kona in it. And they have similar rules regulating uh-huh. Uh, Macho Carri coffee. So you have this large area of yep, yep. And then within it, you have Carmo Domino's. And so there are a lot of roasters who are serving excellent coffees coming out of Carmo. And so you have mm-hmm. at least two major exporters okay. of coffee out of that area. There's one called Carmo Coffees, right? So it's a, a privately held um, company. And then you have the Cocorivi Co-op. And so okay. we are working with the cooperative there. Uh-huh. And farmers from that cooperative can sell their coffee to Carmo Coffees too, and vice versa. You know, but we work specifically okay. with them, and they have a state or rep- state wide or stateside, gotcha um, representative called JC Coffees, and we also work very closely with them uh, mm-hmm. to bring in mm-hmm. some excellent coffee. And it's it's kind of it's not it's not super expensive, but it is pricier than I think I was used to when it came to Brazil's. But it cups so gotcha. much better. <laughs> you know, it's so good. Say.
0: It's for the, yeah, for the flavor profile that we've cupped of, of some of these coffees you're talking about, like, yeah, well worth the little more than a standard Brazil, like for sure.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. And, uh, there, there are some other growing states in Brazil that can produce the same thing. So I don't want to, I don't want to give the impression that only the, the only good coffees are coming from this relationship. There's a lot coming in and we're just happy Mm -hmm. to be part of that. The, uh, I think what's really interesting is all hand-picked, all
0: mm-hmm. pro,
1: all go through an obnoxious amount of quality control in the Cocorivi dry mill, where you have all the latest nice equipment, where you, there's pre-dry milling, mm-hmm. uh, foreign material, rock removal. And then also, uh, I think they have three different electronic eye sorting machines. Maybe it was seven. I don't know. They have a they have a whole they have a whole lot. there where it goes through a pretty strict thing. But what oh. really makes the co- the co-op really special That's awesome. is the fact that is is who is working there. Not just the machines that they have, but they have a really tight tight quality control lab and some really yeah. uh, experienced cuppers of Brazilian coffees. Um, there's a guy named Wellington or Baba, is his nickname that we work with there, and he's got a he's got a team. In the lab that do an excellent job of listening and now that brian has been there and cut with them so much they're well calibrated so when we work with them on some blends or different levels of coffee we can tell them exactly what we need and then to do it send us the pre-ships and they've just been spot on Mm -hmm. every time and so we just released two well three actually three bases for blends for espresso blends one that we call the oro which uh, yep. is, you know, is meant to be a base for espresso that you can buy um, between two fifty and three, right? And then we've got one that we call Baron's of Alfines. Um and this the <laughs> it's named after the Baron of Alfinus, the first one uh, who is an ancestor gotcha. to many of the families who we work with in the Cokoriri co-op, and he's known for okay. this horse breed, the Mangalera. Marchador, I'm sure I'm butchering that name. Uh, that's how it would be pronounced in English. I think in, in Portuguese it sounds sure. much better. <laughs> but like, he's known for developing that horse breed, and it's known for its versatility, its nice. beauty, yeah. and its endurance, and that's what we were trying to achieve with this espresso base. And so we just released two uh, Brazilian offerings, mm-hmm. blends we, of, of coffees from Brazil that we call Barons of Alfinus, Pulp Natural and Full Natural, and those are a little closer to three bucks. So it's like, we're trying to develop tiers and working with a, a group like Coca-Ribe nice. gives us an opportunity to develop tiers of coffee. And so you have those okay. blend bases, And then we have obviously have micro lots that cup the same or better, right, from farmers mm-hmm. that are fully traceable that we can get you on Skype and we can visit with a farmer if you'd like, especially if you speak Portuguese. And then, uh, but then also within the company, within that area, Machikara, they have different competitions. Mm -hmm. So you have the COE, right? Cup of Excellence. But yep. in addition to that, Excellence. I think the farmers felt like they, there was room for and a need for a different kind of internal quality competition. And so they have what we call best of Machi Caras, yeah. which is not a direct translation. I think it's theirs is like a coffee gotcha. quality contest of Machi Caras, something like that, and uh, where they pick 40 of the best coffees, and yeah. those go into an auction. And part of what we've been doing at Midwest Coffee Trading is trying to increase the number of opportunities for roasters who are not on the coasts to participate in really cool coffee events i mean like when i was roasting and if it was something yeah. cool it either happened on the coasts yeah with the exception the cafe imports they would do some cool stuff up in minneapolis right so we're definitely not the first ones to do that but mm-hmm. in the midwest but you know just mm-hmm. we wanted more and so we yep. did mm-hmm. a showcase cupping of the best of coffees and so we had 24 out of the 40 that we put on in a two-part cupping during the day. And the only cities in the United States to do that besides us were Portland, Seattle, Kansas City. Nice. They also did one in Vancouver. So it's like okay. bringing nice. those kinds of opportunities to the Midwest is, is part of yeah. our mission. <laughs> you know, is, and, For you know, sure. Uh, I don't know how many times we can play those kinds of cupping cards you know, and get people to come. But it was fun. <laughs> and so there was one that was the standout for the day. Which was that city of De Torre. And it is, okay. Uh, it was just so good. And what was really crazy is it was the lowest minimum bid um, of any of the coffees there. And so, That's you know, there was enough interest. There was only 15 bags of it. And we're like, you know what? We're going to take a risk. We're going to bid on this. We ended up getting it at a, at a good price where we could offer it to roasters still under mm-hmm, 450 mm-hmm you know? And because there was only 15 yeah, bags, nice. this is, I think this is a good example of kind of the decisions we make. We could have just brought in 15 bags and just sold it by the bag. But then yeah. we're like, there was a lot of yep. interest. Let's spread the wealth. Let's get this packed in 30 kilo boxes mm-hmm. instead of 60 kilo bags and uh, vacuum vacuum packet. And we'll have a little bit for some of yeah. the smaller guys, you know, they can kind of spread it around a little bit. And that, uh, So that's the range of the kind of things that we're doing out of Brazil is from from just large amounts of blend bases to uh, these kinds of auction lot coffees that we can kind of feature for folks. Mm -hmm. And uh, you tasted that Best of Montecara auction lot. And I don't know how you felt about it, but I've kept it blind with a couple different groups. I have not heard people use um, citrus descriptors this much for a Brazilian coffee. I've heard lime. I've heard orange, I've heard different different uh flavored call outs, and nobody guesses for it is sure. Brazil until mm-hmm. until it's revealed now it definitely has once you know it's a Brazil, you're like, oh yeah, you know there's that there's that char, yeah. there's that body you know that comes with the Brazilian coffee. but uh yeah <laughs> but that's that's been what we've been seeing out of Brazil and it's been a really good mover for us, and that's the thing is like we have been helping or for the roasters who are listening to this. If you're a roaster who uses at least one bag mm-hmm. of the same coffee per month, it's worth talking to your importer, whether that's me or whoever you're working with. It's worth talking to them about the future. You know what I mean? Like,
0: Oh, definitely. If
1: you're going through one bag of the same coffee every month, especially if you're, if you're a good payer, then <laughs> there's a lot to be done to keep your supply stable and uh, grow some opportunities for you. Yep. And, uh, you know, with our with our Brazil connection. Definitely. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is if you're going through that much of the same coffee, you need to be talking to your import about what's going on at the country and getting your coffee mm-hmm. set up before it even leaves, you know. So, yeah. like I said, that doesn't have to be us, but whoever you're working with, talking to them about those things now totally. is uh, worthwhile. For sure.
0: Yeah, and I think to kind of wrap that up in a way, uh, I guess so far at this point, Like, from my perspective as a roaster and a green buyer, like, importers can be a great tool and asset to provide traceability and unique and interesting coffees. Um, Importers like Midwest, like, for example, that thing you did with the roaster group, um, they can also use a lot of their processes and um, expertise and avenues to like bring coffee stateside too so um it's cool to find importers that mm-hmm. are like willing to do things like that because um, i've I, from my experience a lot of importers are just like we kind of touched on really early on um can be like a big basically a big bank and they just buy huge amounts of yep. containers of coffee and then they get stateside and they're like here's what we have this, yeah. this this and this and this is the price and if you want it, buy it um and that's it. That's like we have this. This is what we have, um, which it, it works for some people, and I get that. Um, yeah, absolutely. But I think I run
1: into I run into customers who only want that. It,
0: yeah, <laughs> like they're like, I know. Send me a yep. sample
1: and shut up. You
0: know? Yep. And some yeah. some roasters get so comfortable with their importers that they don't even ask for samples. They just like call their guy and be like, Hey, you want you know ten bags of Tanzania, whatever you got, this price, cool, done, do it, send mm-hmm. it, awesome. Uh, where i i as for velodrome coffee company i want to provide like as much traceability as possible but also understand that there are ways uh farmers and everyone along the chain can benefit greatly Uh by working through like proper means too so like with the blends with like with brazil and that sort of thing um or even just like in my recent trip to honduras understanding like farmer networks and how sometimes it can actually be more beneficial for the farmer to operate in a system where their coffee may or may not be separated from their neighbor's coffee. Sometimes they benefit more overall um, and can operate more sustainably because they're part of a group and the traceability Mm kind of gets Mm -hmm. lost. Um, And maybe in the future uh, they will be able to have a completely traceable single lot, micro lot type situation. So it's cool to see, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to like figure that out for myself as well going forward, is how do you navigate all these different uh, options um, and still provide traceability, still provide sustainability, and build a program around that is, yeah, it's a challenge, but having importers that get it too and do a mix of those things is, is like super important to the chain. Absolutely. Well, something that I give is roasters like you who have
1: more experience than some when it comes to visiting origin and seeing what it looks like, you have a clearer picture of the realities of the entrepreneurial nature of coffee production than some. And so mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. um, what gives you strength and what you're doing is you understand when you think coffee farmer, you don't do what some people do and picture coffee pickers mm-hmm. in your head, right? So like you, you have a, a much greater understanding right. of that. Plus. There is no coffee plant out there that just produces specialty. You know, it doesn't just go, right. here's the specialty <laughs> coffee, I'm a specialty coffee plant, you know. Exactly. And it's yeah. we have to find homes for all of the coffee in order for the supply chain exactly. to be sustainable, which means that everybody who buys yep. coffee from those who it's purely a functional beverage at Quick Trip, you know, or at the gas station. Uh, to those who mm-hmm. it is something that they devote mm-hmm. 45 minutes of their time to every yep. morning to fix, you know, the beverage for themselves and whoever else in the morning that they're doing yeah. uh, that for. Yeah. Um, I think you have a, right. a good like, understanding of that. And the more roasters that we have that understand that traceability is great for certain coffees, but understanding that for some producers, selling to the dry mill and getting their money immediately is better for them than going through uh, all the steps it takes to sell to a roaster mm-hmm. in the states and have them down and spend yep. the days with them you know like yeah most of these producers they are not just living on coffee alone you know these guys that we work with in guatemala uh one of the brothers sure. uh is also in a packaging business one of the brothers yep. has yep. a automotive shop in the city one of the brothers like they the all have tie. a different yep. Yeah, they're diversified entrepreneurs For sure. and we can take a lot of lessons from them. And mm-hmm. yeah. uh, and I guess my point is, like sometimes when we're buying a regional blend, like mm-hmm. there are roasters who that's just not their thing. Um, mm-hmm. And if they understand it and it's still not their thing, that's cool. But I think what's blowing yep. my mind is sometimes with these regional blends, you get a coffee that cuts better. Right. It's only tra- So It's transparent. Mm-hmm. It's fully transparent. But it's only traceable to the dry mill because they've taken yeah. all these coffees from all these different farmers, cup them, divide them out, put together the kind of quality that you're looking for. And right. I think that there's, there may be a tendency by some uh, yep. folks in the industry and consumers to think that that somehow is a lower grade or is cheating, is cheating or that somebody didn't get treated well along the way. Right. And that's yep. Yep. not necessarily the case because some of these producers care about mm-hmm. the quality of their coffee. But when you buy a fully traceable coffee most likely that farmer didn't get paid until that coffee hit the port of the United States. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. And so like coffee has a title, just like your car does Mm -hmm. and you don't pay for it until you get your title. Right. Same with Mm -hmm. coffee. Um, and so for some of these folks, it's best for them to get their money at the dry mill and then they're done and they can go on about their business (laughs) and their other things for others. uh, They want to have that connection and it kind of works uh, for them. So did I, I'm sorry, I probably got way off track there. No, you're but, you're no, that yeah. Totally. And so, folks like you, roasters like you, who have seen that with their own eyes, are going to be able to communicate that to their retail customers better. And roasters who are in alignment with their market and mm-hmm. their customers make better buying decisions. They know mm-hmm. their customers. You know, both the customers they have mm-hmm. and the customers that they want. You know. Yeah. And when I see roasters who are out of alignment with their customer base, it is extremely frustrating because they. They, they start blaming mm-hmm. they, they start blaming their machine. Yeah. They start blaming their green unnecessarily. They start que- questioning everything. But the truth is, they're mm-hmm. not drinking coffee like their customer base is. And they have to get in alignment with that. So I guess yeah. what I'm saying is, I'm inc- I, I feel encouraged about what I know about you and uh, Velodrome as far as, I think you're going to have a good handle on who it is you're serving, what role mm-hmm. you play in their life, because um, you're sensitive to that, but then you also know how to go out and get mm. it. Yeah. You know? Hopefully. So. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Yeah.
0: yeah I think yeah. The, the Marquette, like where this shop is going to be in Marquette, Michigan, uh, it's a small, like, college town, um, but a very, uh, I guess, like, kind of liberal town that has, like, a food co op. Um, and has a lot of like academic type people that really care mm-hmm. about where their stuff comes from. So for us initially, it's going to be very focused on uh, single farmer lots and being like, cool. Hey, this is the person, this is the single family, yeah. you know, that grew your coffee. Um, and I, I maybe going into Honduras, I had a little bit of a more romantic view of that um, because in my prior travels, I'd been to Guatemala where it was a single farm and it was a single family and it was big. I didn't realize how big it was um, in the sense that they could deliver their own coffee, to the dry mill, then they could keep their their lots separate and then they could export it to the United States themselves. Um, I just kind of was like, well, like everybody like should be able to do that. <laughs> and then when I went to Honduras and these farmers that farm like less than a hectare and like you know, pulpit themselves on these little hand machines run on like a little, you know, motorcycle engine and then they deliver yeah, like something. wet parchment yeah. um to the, the dry mill and they're like, okay, where's my check? Um was like totally different. Um but yeah. Yeah. And so that was eye opening, but in the same sense I like thought about it a lot, but I'm like, you know what? I think initially, um Velodrome has to kind of differentiate itself in being a single farm lot provider, um, but with the goal eventually to diversify enough where we can have places for all kinds of coffees. Um, but I think the, the market up there is looking for something totally different and also completely um, traceable to as simple of an individual as possible. I think, they, I think for them to understand specialty coffee, because it's kind of a new thing up there, For them to understand specialty coffee, I think the element of having this is the person that grew your coffee intertwined with what they're drinking is going to be important initially.
1: Yeah, a sense of connectedness to the supply chain for them. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. And so as you choose that, I I guess what Mm -hmm. I'm saying is you're making a conscious choice to do that. And you understand everything that goes around it. And you're saying, Mm -hmm. okay, I understand it. I, I know what else is out there and here's how we're going to differentiate ourselves. Not here's what I'm doing and everything else is, you know, irrelevant, <laughs> you know, but like there's like, like you entered it with a more well-rounded view. And so that's a good good. Thanks.
0: Dan. Thanks, yeah. yeah. Cool. So that, that was, that was great just to talk through all of that and got a really wide range of Topics covered with just, like, importing as a whole and what that looks like, traceability. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing you touched on, and just to wrap up kind of briefly, was a question I get all the time in the the wholesale world and the customer world and that sort of thing is, like, how do these coffees get names? Like, how do you figure that out? And I thought it was uh-huh. fun when you touched on earlier about the, the Brazil coffee and, like, naming it, like, yeah. after, you know. <laughs> You uh, named it after horse right or like a, a spe- certain species of horse and it's just because like hey it was a regional blend and like we could kind of name it whatever we wanted and that's what we picked because of this uh, And I think that's awesome um, and a lot of times though it has a lot more to do with like the region or the mountain absolutely. it's near absolutely. or the lake um, and that sort of thing but yeah there's, there's a lot that goes into that as well <laughs>
1: And that's something I think is really cool now is there's so much more of that information available than when I was roasting, you know? Like, you would ask for it, but you just wouldn't Mm -hmm. get it, you know? For sure. So, that's good. (laughs) Is there anything else I can answer for you?
0: Well, I think that pretty much does it for all the questions. Um, I guess I would just leave it with one more closing thought for you, um, and that is, what keeps you doing what you're doing right now? What drives you in this industry currently?
1: Oh, that's a great question. I think... I think I'm often reminded of the miracle that this product even exists, Yes. you know, that within just a couple cent, like a couple millennia, uh-huh. that we've been able to find this berry, mm-hmm. right, that was only native to one part of the world, right, the same place that we are native to, <laughs> you know, yeah. in Ethiopia, yeah. and that it's been able to spread, that we've been able to have such diversity and quality of this product. Uh, That we were even able to figure Mm -hmm. out that you could roast it, grind it, and then extract things you love from it. It just (laughs) blows my mind. And I think – so I think uh, every once in a while I get reminded of that, and that's awesome. And I I think you just don't get tired of coffee, right? Like you sell sandwiches. You can really get tired of your own sandwiches over time if you've ever worked (laughs) in a place that sells sandwiches. And you just (laughs) never get tired of coffee. It never gets old. So I think mm-hmm. there's that, and I just think that the variety of opportunities that have been presented to me keep yeah. me in it. Um, I also am motivated to provide for my family, and you know let's not forget that this is a business, you know and so something that drives um, mm-hmm. me in coffee is yeah. to find ways to <laughs> sustain my household. <laughs> you know with that. definitely so, yeah, yeah totally understand and I, and I think that's something yeah. like we should be ashamed <laughs> of i think we talk about sustainability a lot totally in the united states when it comes to coffee mm-hmm. until we get to the retail part of the united states and all of a sudden mm-hmm. profit is like this bad thing but it it takes it takes that to make the whole supply chain work
0: mm-hmm. and I,
1: I won't get on a soapbox with that i will just say <laughs> that baristas who don't have to worry about making ends meet are better baristas same for shop owners mm-hmm. and people who own importing companies. Mm-hmm. Like when they know.
0: All right. So unfortunately, we did lose Ben's feed right there. We, we had some technical difficulties recording this this show um, with how we were recording the Skype call. Um, basically, our, our bandwidth was not keeping up. And so we had some weird issues with lag. And you might have noticed... Throughout the episode where Ben's voice kind of sped up and slowed down a bit. Um, so, sorry about that. We're just working out the kinks on that. Um, but, yeah. So, he, he he just kind of finished up talking a little bit about um, what keeps him driven in the industry. And it was really funny that he said exactly um, what he did. Because I almost to the T. Like, that's, that's kind of the exact same thing that keeps me going in this industry today, too. Is the incredible miracle that is coffee just that as ben mentioned we can have such an amazing product that someone figured out all of this um that someone like discovered coffee and then like roasted coffee and grinded and and brewed it and, and all those steps and not only that but for me too seeing all the processes it goes through just to end up in our cup is insane So there's a lot that happens and it's amazing that we can have such a great product at the end. So um, yeah, so it was awesome having Ben. Huge thanks to him and for uh, his influence in my coffee journey and also just all the great work he's been doing. So shout out to Ben. Thanks for being on the show. Um, Also shout out to Space Capone who does our music for us. And also uh, I guess I'd leave it with If you like what you're hearing and you want to hear more of this sort of a thing, uh, definitely go over to our website and the best thing you can do at this point is to pre-order a bag of our coffee. We've got a crazy goal of 300 bags ordered before our first shipment on May 1st. So if you like what you hear and you haven't bought a bag, it would be absolutely amazing if you were to go and do that. So that's on velodromecoffeecompany.com. Also, if you want to keep up up to date with everything else that's going on with the company, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Shouldn't be too hard to find us. Um, but yeah, we're uh, we're chugging right along right here. And again, if you do have questions or anything else uh, you want to get in contact about for the show in particular, you can email me at Bryce, B-R-I-C-E, at velodromecoffeecompany dot com. Um, yeah, tell your friends we're you know we're trying to do something a little different here and basically we need your help so if you could help us with that we would be grateful uh thanks again for listening to another episode of the velodrome coffee podcast again i'm bryce stermer thanks for joining us and keep an eye out for our next episode all right